new microphone today, so we'll see how this works. We are in Deuteronomy, chapters 10 and 11. So we're not going to read it. It's long. We will read it all as we go through it, but um, let us begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. Thank you for giving us the book of Deuteronomy and making us your people. You have brought us to the words of life. So as always, give us the desire to learn from you this morning. Help us to consider what it means to love and obey you. And so we pray, speak through the words of Moses this morning. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to know God more and to see Jesus clearly. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Some of you have read the book, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Uh, he writes about various love languages by which people uh, give and receive love. And he suggests that, that people have very distinct ways that people give and receive love. There's words of affirmation, physical touch, the giving of gifts, acts of service, and quality time, various ways that love is communicated. And his argument is to have a healthy relationship, you need to learn your partner's love language and communicate love in a way that speaks to that person. And the problem is, we normally communicate love to others the way we want to receive it. But that's not always the way the other person wants to receive it. So you need to be a good student of other people. In the case of marriage, of your spouse. But the question I have for you this morning is, what is God's love language? God communicates his love to us in very clear and definite ways. John 3:16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then later on in 1 John 4, uh, the apostle says, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So God communicates his love uh, for the world by sending his only son to the cross to pay for our sins. But how do we communicate love to God? Well, Deuteronomy 10 and 11 answers that question for us. And the message of these chapters is simply this. To love God is to obey God. That's it. Sounds simple. To love God is to obey God. Love for God is uh, not about a feeling on Sunday morning. It is about a life of devotion every day, day after day, month after month, year after year. And despite this clear-cut teaching of Scripture, most Christians continually struggle with this. Why? How do we overcome this constant struggle to obey God? Now, we know that Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5 say, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace, 
you have been saved. So God's great love is why he saved us. And God's great love for us is to be the motivator for our great obedience. So the love of God for undeserving people like the Israelites, for undeserving people like us, is the main focus of these two chapters. And in return, God asks for our loving response. And our loving response to the love of God is obedience. Now, the first reason we respond that way is because his love is a merciful love. Starting at chapter 10, the first 11 verses, we see it is merciful. Uh, it is a merciful love. Now, at the end of chapter 9, which we looked at last week, Moses prays for the people. If you remember, he lays down before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights, and he intercedes for the people. And he says, end of Deuteronomy 9, uh, I'm just going to read a couple verses, and I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. And now in the opening verses of chapter 10, Moses is essentially saying, God answered the prayer. God answered the prayer, starting at verse 1. At that time, the Lord said to me, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. You remember Moses had shattered the tablets and caught the people sinning with the golden calf. Now he says, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut two tablets of stone like the first and went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before, the Ten Commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. And then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made. And there they are, as the Lord commanded me. The people of Israel journeyed from Barot ben Jakan to Moserah. There Aaron died, and there he was buried. And his son Eleazar ministered as priest in his place. From there they journeyed to God. Gogada, and from Gogada to Japaha, a land with brooks of water. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to minister to him and to bless in his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. I myself stayed on the mountain as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights, and the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. And the Lord said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people, so they may go in and possess the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. Look back at the beginning, verses 1 and 2, and let's look at what God is saying here. 
He tells them, you broke the tablets because they broke the covenant. But go cut some new tablets. Bring them up to me. And I will write on them again. The same thing I wrote on them before. I'm not going to change my rules because they want to live their way. He says, I'm going to write on these new tablets the same thing I wrote on the last tablets. God doesn't change his laws to accommodate sin. But he's a merciful God who says they turn their backs on me, but I won't turn my back on them. I will be merciful even though they deserve my anger. Now verse 6 reads, the people have journeyed to those hard to pronounce places. There Aaron died and there he was buried. And his son Eliezer ministered as priest in his place. Now Moses inserts this in order to show us another response to God's anger. In Deuteronomy 9, we read, And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. God wasn't just angry with Israel. He was also angry with Aaron for leading them into sin. But he spared him. And here we're told that Aaron dies later on. God permits his son Eliezer to be the new priest. And the line of Aaron becomes the Levites, the deacons, if you will, of the Old Testament, who ministered around the house of God. And once again, Moses is telling them, you are here because when the Lord should have checked you out of here, he was merciful. That's lesson one. The Lord's mercy demands our loving obedience. You don't have to obey his requirements in order to receive mercy, but the fact that you have already received mercy should lead us into obedience. As you've received mercy, you don't just keep going on doing your own thing. God now requires something for those he's given his mercy to, for those who've received his mercy. So what does he require? Well, he requires us to prioritize love. To prioritize love. Picking up at verse 12 of chapter 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, 
and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So now the Lord answers the question in verse 12, what does the Lord your God require of you? It's not a hard answer to understand. He says, to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today. But notice the last phrase of verse 13. He says, for your good. When God commands you to do this or forbids you from doing that, he's not trying to hurt you. He's not trying to kill your joy. He's not trying to prevent you from enjoying life. God leads us to holiness and leads us away from sin for our good. If you go your own way, it'll lead to a dead end forever. But the commandments of the Lord are for your good. So how do we live out the life that God has called us to? Again, we remember his mercy. We see that in verses 14 and 15. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. This great and awesome God set his heart in love on you. You need, first of all, to remember how great God is, but also how merciful God is. But he wants us to do what he does for us, and that's to prioritize our love for him in our hearts. Look again at verses 16 and 17. These are actually the key verses of chapter 10. It says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Remember in chapter nine, he had told them twice, you are a stubborn people. He says, be no longer stubborn for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. So going all the way back to Genesis 17, circumcision is the sign of the covenant between God and Israel. And God is now telling the people who have obeyed this command required to be a part of the nation of Israel. But listen to what Moses says now. He says, circumcise your hearts. Just doing the right thing doesn't make you right with God. Religious acts don't make you right with God if your heart is not right. Church attendance, worship, baptism, church membership, diligent service, generous giving, as important as all of those things are, and they are, won't make you right with God if your heart is not right. True religion is always from the inside out, which sort of begs the question, how are things between you and the Lord? You don't have to answer that out loud, but you can answer it to yourself. Every one of us here struggles with the same issues of life. God is holy and we're not. And we have to answer to God with how, uh, for how we've lived our lives. And there is no good thing in us to commend us to God. Our attempts of being good fall way short of his righteous standard. We are on a collision course with the holy wrath of God. But in his mercy, 
God sent his son who lived a holy, perfect, righteous life, never committing the sins that Moses keeps talking about. He lived the life that we should have lived, and at the cross he died the death that we should have died. That's why we call it substitutionary atonement. That's theological language, but it means it should have been you and I suffering under the wrath of God, but he took our place. And if you run to the cross and throw yourself on the mercy of God and trust the blood and righteousness of Christ, you can be saved today and forever. And if that's true for you, then you are to be a witness for love. Starting at chapter 11, we're going to pick out a few verses, four verses out in the middle of chapter 11, verses 18 to 21. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land the Lord swore to, give, swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. Now, when I say witness for love, witness doesn't mean to watch something like a witness to a crime. Rather, it means to give testimony by word or deed to your faith. And Moses is telling us this actually for the second time. These words are almost a verbatim repeat from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So hopefully they sounded familiar to you. I spent a lot of time on them a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them now, but let's look at them quickly. He says, if you lay up these words of mine in your heart, then again, it means you're going to love God in your whole life. You don't love God just on the weekends. You don't love God in your private life, but not your public life. You don't love God with this person, but not that person, uh, not even if you're afraid that they're going to think you're weird. In other words, the love of God should penetrate every single corner of your life, your entire waking life, public, private, inner, outer, every nook and cranny of your life should be affected by the love of God. And then obedience becomes something we want to do. Think about that. Obedience because some, becomes something we want to do. You may obey because you have to. You may obey because you need to. You may obey because you're supposed to. But none of those reasons is sufficient for obedience. It's not sufficient to obey because you need to. It's important, but it's not sufficient. It's not even sufficient to obey because you're supposed to. All of us have been in situations where we're tired of expectations. I'm supposed to do this because I'm married. I'm supposed to do this because I'm a Christian. And if truth were told, many of us would do things differently if we didn't feel like we had to, we needed to, or we were supposed to. <coughs> None of those is sufficient motivation for obedience. The motivation for obedience is not have to, need to, supposed to, but want to. See, when you obey because you want to, it's easy obedience. 
even if the task is hard. When you obey because you want to, it means that you're looking forward to doing it. How many parents would be inspired today if your teens came home and said, Mom, I want to wash the dishes. Mom, I want to clean my room. Mom, I want to put gas in your car. Now, first of all, you put your hand on their forehead to see if they had a fever or not. You'd be worried they got heat stroke or something. Or they're just buttering you up to ask for a big favor. But wouldn't it be nice if we did that stuff simply because we wanted to? That's what God's telling us. Real obedience comes when you want to. Now back to the why question. Why does the love of God motivate us to obey God? Well, first we saw that because God is merciful to us, <clears throat> we should want to keep his commandments. Second, we saw that since God prioritizes his love in our lives, we should prioritize our love for him in our lives. And now, because God not only promises his love to us, he promises us the blessings from love. And that's the rest of chapter 11, minus those few verses I pulled out. He promises us the blessings from love. And this is the long part. It says, you shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider today, since I am not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land, and what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you. And how the Lord has destroyed them to this day. And what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place. And what he did to Datan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben. How the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. With their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. I'm just going to stop there for a moment. If you go back and look that up, these were two folks that basically told Moses, we're more spiritual than you are. We love God more than you do. You're not all that great, Moses. We, we're, we know God. We're the ones. And then God showed up and built the, put a sinkhole under their tent and they disappeared. We should be very careful before we brag about how well we know God. Anyways, it goes on, verse 7. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess. And you may live long in the land the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of, it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. 
But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. Jumping down to verse 22. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon, and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread, as he promised you. And then verse 26. And this gets to the really one of the important parts of this passage. Moses is ending essentially his second sermon, which has been from Deuteronomy 6 through Deuteronomy 11. Here's how he ends it. See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road, towards the going down of the sun, in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the Oak of Moreh? Fairly specific. For you are to cross over the Jordan to go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God has given you. And when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and rules that I am setting before you today. So from the very first verse, Moses is laying down the foundational truth of these two chapters. To love God is to obey God. He says if you're going to lovingly obey God, then you have to consider who God is. You've got to remember who God is. You can't let anything distract you from who God is. So with some urgency, he says, consider today who God is and what he's done for you right at the beginning of chapter 11. And then there's this awkward parenthetical in verse two. He says, I'm not talking to your children who haven't seen God do these things. They weren't there. They don't know what I'm about to tell you. I'm talking to you. The children of the people here were not in Egypt. They didn't experience all the wilderness wanderings firsthand. They've only heard about a lot of these things. He basically tell them, they didn't see it, but you have. You've seen God at work in your own life. 
You've seen much. You've experienced too much to try to go your own way now. Actually, you know better than to go your own way. Now, is Moses speaking to them or to us? To both. There are some who are young in the faith here. And there are some kids uh, who still got some growing up to do. But some of us have seen God do too much for us to continue in our old ways. He says, you've seen it. Your children didn't see it, but you've seen it. He says, consider the discipline of the Lord. Consider the training of the Lord. Consider the instruction of the Lord. He's pointing them back to their experiences with God, from God bringing them out of Egypt and then all they went through in the wilderness. And he's telling them this is a moral education. The ups and downs, the highs and lows, the successes, the failures, you call it life, God calls it school. Through the ups and downs and wins and losses, God is trying to teach you and train you and discipline you and instruct you and prepare you. And at this point, Moses is saying, you've learned so much. You really ought to be getting better grades by now. Consider who God is. You already know this. But don't only consider who he is. Consider what he's promised. Moses says if you obey God, he will bless you, and he describes the blessing. He says God will bless you with land. Starting at verse 8. Shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land you are going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring a land flowing with milk and honey. And then we jump to verse 12. We see the land is important because God has declared a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. See, in the land of Canaan, they worshiped fertility gods. And when Baal was present, the rains would fall and the land would be fertile. But during the dry seasons, they claimed that Baal had gone away. And because he was gone, the rain didn't fall. And God is saying, don't worship a God who goes into hiding and can't help you when you need it. My eye is on that land from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. You have got a God who's watching over you from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And then he says in verses 13 to 17, he's gonna make the land fruitful. And then in verses 22 to 25, he says he'll give you possession of it. And often when Moses is using the term the promised land, which he doesn't do here, but when he does, he means dwelling in that physical land and dwelling in that future heavenly land. But not here, here land means land. And then finally at the end, he lays out the blessings and the curses. These verses should sound familiar to uh, those of you who are here for our Joshua series a year ago. Because at the end of Joshua 8, they conducted a covenant renewal ceremony in accordance with the instructions that were given in Deuteronomy 11, which will be expanded in Deuteronomy 27. In order to present the truth in visual terms, to emphasize the need for obedience, Moses tells them of two mountains 
gonna stand on either side of uh, the plain. And as the pilgrims enter this land, they're going to see him, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. One signifies blessing, the other cursing. And they're gonna serve as two silent witnesses to the Lord's demand for Israel to choose where her allegiance would be placed. And Moses says, I want you to have one service in two locations, one on Mount Gerizim and one on Mount Ebal. <coughs> half the tribes were to climb Mount Gerizim, the other half, Mount Ebal. And a priest on Mount Gerizim would announce all the blessings of God in the book of Deuteronomy. And the people will respond by saying amen and affirming the divine blessings. But then another priest on Mount Ebal would announce all the curses of God in Deuteronomy. The people would say amen and affirm the curses. And Moses is telling them, I'm almost done here. I won't be able to go into the land with you. I won't be able to remind you that you've got a choice. And when you get into the land without me, I want you to have this special service on two mountains. So as you live in the land, all you gotta do is look up at Mount Gerizim or look up at Mount Ebal and be reminded of the blessings and curses of God so that you make the right choice. Now, where are these mountains? Look again at verse 30. It's very specific. Are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road, toward the going down of the sun, in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the Oak of Moreh? Here's the phrase I want you to remember beside the Oak of Moreh. Because all these places seem confusing, but this is the area of Shechem. And Moses is saying, I want you to have the service on these two mountains near the Oak Tree of Moreh in Shechem because according to Genesis 12, after God spoke to Abraham and said, leave your father's house and go to the land that I am promising you, this is where God brought Abraham. This is where Abraham built an altar beside the Oak of Moreh. This is where Jacob, his grandson, bought land beside the Oak of Moreh. And not only did he buy land, he dug a well there. And centuries later in John chapter four, Jesus would have a conversation with a woman at that well beside the Oak of Moreh. And Joseph's body would be buried there beside the Oak of Moreh. All of this associates the Oak of Moreh, not just with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, but with the covenant of God. And God is saying, I want you to have this service beside the Oak of Moreh, where I made the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so that when you get here, you'll have a landmark reminder that I'm a God who always keeps his promises. I may not work according to your schedule, and even though I don't come when you want me to, I'm always right on time. If you wanna know I'm a good God, if you wanna know I'm a faithful God, if you wanna know I'm a covenant-keeping God, I want you to have a service beside the Oak of Moreh. And that same God is still good. That same God is still faithful. That same God is still a covenant-keeping God. Do you need to be reminded of that? Do you need to be reminded that when we're unfaithful, he's still faithful? When our love wanes, his holds fast. When we don't keep our word, he still keeps his. We need that kind of reminder. 
For everyday life was lived between those two mountains, Mount Gerizim and blessings, and Mount Ebal and curses. And every one of them either obeyed and went to the mountain of blessing, or disobeyed and went to the mountain of curses. And since Mount Ebal was the mountain of curses, an altar was needed on that mountain for sacrifices to bring forgiveness and restore fellowship with God. And the Old Testament sacrifices speak of the work of Christ on the cross, Hebrews 10, and how he bore the curse of the law for us, Galatians 3. Do you need a reminder of that? Because for us, everyday life is lived between two mountains. Mount Calvary, where Jesus died for us, and the Mount of Olives, where Jesus will return for us. And every one of us will either obey and be blessed, or disobey and be cursed. And sitting here this morning, we know that every one of us has failed to love God the way we should. Every one of us has failed to obey God the way we should. And we need a sacrifice to bring us forgiveness and restore fellowship with God. So we go to a tree, another tree where a man was hung on a cross. And we run to that cross and trust in the one who paid the price we owed so that that tree you can have a fresh start, a new beginning, and eternal life. And then we come to his table. So here you can throw yourself on the mercy of God and trust in the cleansing blood and righteousness of Christ and know that you can be saved today and forever. At this table, we're reminded to trust his promises. And we are reminded that he's a good God. And we are reminded that he's a faithful God. And we are reminded that he's a covenant-keeping God. And we're reminded that Romans 8.1 is still true for us. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Think about that. His table awaits. And you should pray before you get there. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Faithful Father, your love for us is changeless and unending. We confess that our love for you is weak and variable and laced with selfish ambition. Your love is like a mighty ocean that rushes towards us each day and envelops us with kindness and mercy and steadfast faithfulness. And our love for you is like a fleeting mist, a vapor that rises from time to time and quickly evaporates in the heat of life's pain and suffering. Father, forgive us for loving so many other gods and giving our lives to them while failing to notice your hand at work in loving, each and, uh, loving us each and every day. You govern the entire universe and work all things together for our good, but we are quick to blame you. We are quick to turn away from you and to give our worship and love to so many others. Lord, forgive us for our many sins. Jesus, thank you for your changeless and unending love. You loved us before the foundation of the world and entered history in order to redeem us. You love God and your neighbor perfectly, loving and serving God and keeping every one of his statutes and commandments. You did this because you knew that we never could. And so you gave us the gift of your spotless perfection. Holy Spirit, fill us with gratitude for the love we have in Christ that will never let us go. 
Although our sins are many and increase in number, lift up our heads and show us the cross. Thank you that we cannot close our hearts to you, for your love is relentless. And in faithfulness, you pursue us and draw us back to you time and time again. Show us the beauty of Christ, his wounds that paid our ransom, and his faithful obedience that makes us accepted in him. Help us to love him in growing obedience until we bow before him at that last day. Grant that we may live like people who love the law because we love you, so that we may receive the blessings of the law, seen in lives lived in obedience to your word and work in each of us this year as we learn more about knowing God. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word and through the book of Deuteronomy. Draw us ever closer to the one who offered up his righteous life to pay the penalty for our unrighteous lives. Your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.